Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, spiritual literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast hosted by Reformers Bookshop. We are back into a, a new season of the Bookcast, and today we have uh, Randy Newman with us, who is the author of a new book, Mere Evangelism. Here it is, which is uh, about 10 insights about evangelism from C.S. Lewis. Uh, welcome, Randy. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, now, Randy, would you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, where are you? What, what sure. do you do? Um, well, um, I'm, I'm originally from New York, uh, suburbs of New York City, uh, but now I live uh, just outside Washington, D.C., suburbs of D.C. Um, I work mostly with an organization called the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm their senior fellow for apologetics and evangelism. Uh, before that, uh, I was with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, for over 30 years, lots of campus ministry, worked with students and professors. And um, I, I also do um, some writing and teaching for a number of other different ministries. I'm um, going to be teaching a class on evangelism for Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington, right. D.C. later this week. So uh, those are some of my hats that I wear. Excellent. And so you've had uh, quite a history in evangelism, in um, speaking the gospel around around places as a as a thing that you do all all the time. <laughs> how did you fall? How did you fall into that? <laughs> well, um, I, I always feel the need to uh, start by telling people that yeah, I've, I've done a lot of evangelism, and and Crew is certainly a very very strongly evangelistic organization on the college campuses. But I, uh, I I've always been rather reluctant in my evangelism. I'm. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert. Uh, when I started doing stuff with the C.S. Lewis Institute, I asked him if my title could be the most reluctant evangelist, and they said no, they didn't let me do that. Um, it's always been kind of a struggle for me, and so I, I think in a sense I, I write out of processing and wrestling and working through my my uh, weaknesses and struggles. Um, so. Um, I, I will tell you, I, I uh, came to faith in Jesus out of a Jewish background. I was uh, born and raised into a Jewish family in suburbs of New York City and uh, came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah when I was 20 years old, uh, second year in the university. So I, I had to work through a whole lot of obstacles there. And I, I think that the obstacles in becoming a Christian and then the obstacles in doing evangelism have um uh, help me equip other people who might call themselves reluctant or uh, timid evangelists. Yep, and that that phrase would seem to suit, at least in my experience, the vast majority of Christians. Yeah, I think yeah. it is the majority for sure. Yeah, um, you know, for a long time when I was with uh, uh, Crew, uh, we, we would hear a whole lot of guest speakers, and and they all talked about how easy and natural evangelism was for them, and they would share these wonderful success stories of everybody they ever talked to, you know, becoming a Christian right away. And my experience was just so very, very different from that. And so it, again, it kind of forced me to wrestle with. 
what, you know, how, how can we be effective? Um, particularly if, if older methodologies are not working that well. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know all about the different cultural regions in Australia. Maybe there aren't that many differences, but um, for a long time in, in America, where I am, um, the East and West coasts were very, very different culturally than the Midwest and the South. That is still true. And, but particularly as far as the gospel and uh, church ministry and evangelism, uh, things that worked rather easily in the Midwest or the South didn't work at all on East Coast or West Coast. So, and, and I was always on East Coast, big city, urban campuses and had to figure out, okay, if that's not working and that's not working, what can work? How, how do we reach people? And uh, so that was, that was, that's part of my uh, formation, I guess you'd say, in, in skills and evangelism. Um, I want to ask you a lot more about evangelism, but before we get there, um, you're, you came from a Jewish background and now uh, quite clearly very interested in C.S. Lewis, being the senior fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Um, <laughs> I presume you weren't reading C.S. Lewis growing up. Oh, certainly not growing up, no. But, um, um, well, so um, uh, two strands of my coming to faith. One was um, uh, my family was very culturally Jewish, but not necessarily religiously okay. so. But okay. I started taking Judaism more seriously than the rest of my family. And so I, I started digging in on a much deeper level. And and I just found it to be very, very uh, frustrating and difficult. It didn't, didn't seem like it connected me with God in any kind of meaningful way. Around the same time, I also met a group of friends who were part of a church youth group, and they did seem to know God in a real and personal way. And so this contrast was, I mean, I'm, I'm part of God's chosen people. I'm doing these commandments. I, I, you know, I, I, I pray in Hebrew. That's his language. Um, and yet here's these, these Presbyterians of all things, and, you know, they, they just make up prayers on spontaneously in English. It just didn't seem right. And um, so they were a group of people who encouraged me to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Uh, they also gave me a copy of the New Testament, which really kind of made me uh, nervous because I, I had been trained to think that the New Testament was a very anti-Semitic book. So uh, I didn't read either Mere Christianity or the New Testament. I went off to college, had a year and a half of... Um, pretty absurd living and really getting into some existentialist philosophy. But when a friend of mine died in a very tragic accident, I pulled out this paperback New Testament that friends had given me years before and I brought away to college. Isn't that something? And I also went to the library and took out mere Christianity by some guy named CS something or other. <laughs> and um, the Lord used both of those uh, in, in a really powerful way to, to convince me that Jesus really was the Messiah and that he was the Messiah I needed. Mm. So that was the shortened story. Um, I could elaborate if you want me to. Or No, no, no. That's, that's good. That's, um, they're very interesting. Um, because when I picked up the book, uh, Mere Evangelism, that you've written, I, one of my first thoughts was C.S. Lewis evangelist uh, ah. you know i because i i know him from narnia obviously i know right, christianity right. which is an apologetic work 
But then there's a whole bunch of other things that I know that he's written that are more sort of literary or looking at yeah. the Christian life, you know. And so, um, do, was he an evangelist? What, was he oh, someone given to that? What a great question. So, uh, well, first of all, um, he he wrote in in a letter to a friend that he thought all of his books were in some way evangelistic. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, and um, I, he was an evangelist, but certainly in a very different uh, style or pattern than we typically think. Mm. Um, and the fact that he, well, he, one of his very, very earliest Christian books was The Problem of Pain. And he wrote it for a skeptical non-Christian to wrestle with the problem of evil. So right from the start of his Christian writing, he was trying to reach out to people. And that book, The Problem of Pain, got him sort of, you know, on the landscape so that the BBC contacted him when they wanted to do these radio broadcasts that eventually became Mere Christianity, the book. But but they were originally radio broadcasts. And um, I mean, in some ways, he was he was um, not your typical evangelist. He even said that the ideal setting would be for him to be paired up with um, someone else who closed the deal. I don't think that was the phrase he used, but you know, <laughs> he would be the one who would prepare the way and build arguments and logic and reason. And then you bring in the fiery preacher who says, now listen, you sinners, you rebels, you need to receive this Jesus right now. Everybody bow your heads. So, um, so he, he did see himself as an evangelist, but he strongly argued for the need of, pre-evangelism or preparatory work. And that's, that's what I think is the biggest lesson we need to learn from Lewis was that whole preparatory kind of thing. Cause um, so many people are just not ready to understand um, some, some common starting places where we typically want to begin. Yeah. And I'm glad you went there um, because that, that sort of touches on um, a couple of areas that I want to discuss uh, one one thing you talk about a bit in the book, and you've even mentioned it in some of the ways you phrase things already, um, in in this interview, is uh, about how things, which things work and which things don't work, um, and so there's sort of this this pragmatism almost that comes through. That although I don't like the word, I don't know what you think of that word. Um, how does that sort of gel with with I guess a um, a presuppositional apolog- apologetic or evangelistic method. Um, do you? Can you sort of explain? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this more than I have. Um, how you see evangelism occurring and being commanded in the Bible, and how that fits with method that we might ap- approach. So this is going to be a, a four-hour conversation. Is that right? No, no, no. I know it's oh, a big question. Oh, I know it's a big <laughs> question, but <laughs> it really is. Wow! You made, me, you made me think. All right, I, I can't help it. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. Um, well, so I, I like I like the way you worded in the question there of the way evangelism is commanded and also how it occurs in Scripture because because both of those are very important uh, in our thinking about how we do evangelism. And um, I I just think, for example, of the way Jesus started talking to the woman at the well. Mm. 
Um, he, he talked about water. He talked about thirst. He talked about, um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if there was a kind of water that when you drank it, you weren't thirsty anymore. Mm. And then he started talking to her about her moral life and the five failed marriages and the guy she was living with now. And so that's, that's all pre evangelism. Now, he then did go then talk about the claim that he was the Messiah. And this woman obviously knew enough of what that meant, that that was now moving from preparatory to who is this person I'm talking to and, and who is he and why did he come? And uh, so, so that's an example. Um, of course, the, uh, one of the lengthiest examples we have is Paul's message in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. And he's quoting their poets and he's talking about the statues and, and things, the temples around them. And um, so there's, there's all these things in the scriptures themselves that say, let's find the starting place of where people already are. What are, what are the things they already believe? What are the things they value? What, where are the hungers and the dissatisfactions in their lives? And I, so, so that's where um, I, I think a, a very big part of why Lewis did that was because that's the route that he came yeah. to faith. I mean, he, he became an atheist when he was only, I don't know, 10 years old or so um, when his mother died. And um, so it was, it was, he loved mythology and he loved story. And he starts having a conversation with Tolkien and his friend Hugo Dyson. And they started talking about story, the nature of story. Why is it that in all these stories, there are things like a God who dies and comes back to life, or there's, there's goodness and beauty. What, what, why are we drawn to goodness and beauty? And that's what was, what the Lord used to, to connect to C.S. Lewis to bring him from what, what, why do I have a religious view that life is pointless and meaningless and ugly? And yet I'm drawn to this beauty and meaning in these stories. Um, maybe I need to question my religious beliefs and maybe I need to think that there's something about these stories that point to a greater story. The, the true myth is the way Tolkien talked about it. So, so that's all of these things wrapped up. I, I do think that that's, that is what, people have in mind when they talk about presuppositionalist apologetics. Um, but I, I want to, I want to go closer to the scripture and look at, look at what they did. Look at how they did it. Where did they start? Um, Cause I think a lot of us are impatient with that kind of approach, but if it's modeled for us by our Lord and then by Paul and others in scripture, um, I think, I, I think we need to, um, uh, value it highly. Yeah. Yep. And a wonderful answer to a very tough question. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, I don't, I don't know if you're going to ask this, but I, I have been so intrigued in my thinking about evangelism. I, I, I write about it in this book, but I, I think I write about it in other places too. I mean, we always like to compare Acts 13 and Acts 17. So here's Paul in Acts 13 in a synagogue. Mm. So these are people who are, they're pretty far along in the preparatory thing. They already believe in God. They believe the scriptures. They believe in right and wrong, holiness, sin, you know, all these categories. And so Paul steps into that and just tries to show how all of their understanding of the scriptures point to the Messiah, who is Jesus. 
And then in Acts 17, it's a very secular crowd. And he does the things that I was just talking about. He goes instead, the starting point is not the scriptures. Starting point is their poets and their buildings around them. But in between those two, in Acts 14, is Paul in Lystra and Derby. And in Lystra, I believe it is, he heals uh, this man. And uh, Paul and Barnabas heal this man. And, and these people start bowing down and worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And so, so they're religious, but they're not like the religious Jews in the synagogue, but they're not like the secular Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens. They're a different category. They're, they're religion, religious, but pagan religious. And, and what does Paul do? He appeals to their inner happiness. He, he says God has not left himself without a witness. He gives rain mm. and crops in their season and food and joy in your hearts. He says to these kind of confused people, you have joy in your hearts, almost as if to say, where do you think it comes from? Or why does food taste so delicious? And isn't it wonderful that it rains and, and things grow out of the ground and then we pick them and we eat them. And, and it's this joy-based apologetics that I, that I talk about in the book. Mm. And I think that's also a variety of presuppositional apologetics, but I, I call it joy-based. And I also, I, I like to think of it as food-based apologetics. I mean, I just think that's wonderful. Delicious food <laughs> as, as pre-evangelism. That, that, that's like, you know, you know, let's sit down and eat a meal and, and talk about, isn't this food delicious? Why, how, why is it that, that we are creatures who, who we need nourishment, but it's so centrally delightful, at, you know, at the same time, so... Anyway, yeah, my, my, my Jewish roots are coming through. We like we like food. <laughs> oh, so do we. Don't worry. Um, I think everyone does. Uh, so one, as you've been talking and as I was reading your book, I think maybe one of the the things that has had to shift in in the way I've thought about things is when people have talked about sort of presuppositional apologetic or or evangelism. Um, from a presuppositional standpoint, I've typically thought, oh, okay, so straight to scripture. I need to be like, if we can just explain it out of scripture, then we that's that's where we should start because that's that's what it sort of meant in my mind. But I like where you're coming from because it's more like actually no, it's just that our conversation should always bubble out of scripture. It should be rooted in it. Um, that should be the the presupposition that sits beneath it. But our conversation is just that. And, and that's actually what I, wrote, I sort of wrote down when I was thinking about your pre-evangelism section, which is really the first half of the book. I wrote, it, it seems to me to look like someone who's interested in others and interested in God and unashamed to bring that interest into conversation. Mm, yeah, yes. Um, I, yes, I, I, I do want to be careful because I... I I, I don't want people to think that I don't believe in the power of the scripture. Um, <laughs> oh, no, you, you actually are, are you're quite clear on that later on. Um, uh, good. Glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't saying no. that at all. No, no. I'm just meaning in terms of, we, you know, you, you're talking to a friend or a family member and you are wanting, mm -hmm. you want them to, to come to know Christ. Yes. And we can think, oh, well, we just have to, you know, read the Bible to them and that, that's how they get saved. But yeah. actually, we're interacting with a human being, and C.S. Lewis seems to me, both in his writing 
um, and in the way mm-hmm. that he thought about story and myth and, mm-hmm. and, and literature, yes. he's a guy who who loves life and loves the narrative of life and the, the wonder and magic of life um, and is interested in other people and in their experiences and he sees how God fits into all of that. Yes, yes. Um, so there's so many different directions we could go. Um, it, it's kind of ironic, but the scriptures themselves endorse and record conversations that don't start with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now, there's certainly times to quote, the, absolutely to quote the scriptures. But, but again, it, isn't that intriguing? That, that's not where Jesus started with the woman at the well. He didn't, he didn't say, uh, it is written. Um, now, he did get around to talking that he was the Messiah, which has tons of scriptural implications. And again, Paul in Acts 17, and so many places were given examples of that. He, even the logic, I think, of the book of Romans, it starts with God's general revelation. Look at creation. What does that tell us about God? If, if the world is the way it is, well, it tells us he's powerful, and it tells us that he has he has come into this world that he created. Um, so, um, and, and you yourselves know that you're sinners because you, <laughs> you know, he, he he appeals to their conscience before he even gets right. To the, well, exactly. Yeah. That yes, the argument of Romans two is okay. Look, look at all of the rules you pass yeah. about other people, and and then you violate those very rules. So you know it within your heart. So yes, he's he's pointing outward to the world, inward to our conscience. And then he quote, then he starts quoting scripture quite uh, dramatically in Romans three. Um, I, I'm also, I, I'm also drawn to uh, in Colossians four, when Paul is asking for prayer that the Colossians would pray that he would proclaim the message um, clearly as I, as he should. Um, and, and he's telling them uh, to be wise in the way they act toward outsiders and always let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And it sure seems to me that that means as we talk about a million different topics, every, every topic, if, if, if in fact the whole earth is full of his glory, then every single thing about life should in some way um, point to God as creator and Lord. And so we, we want to try to point out those places where we see the intersection of something in their life or our common life and God's hand as creator and sovereign king. So let's, let's try and just help anyone who's listening out in, in terms of um, what that might look like. So um, can, you, can you sort of paint for us a situation? Maybe let's say you're going... To the down to get a coffee with your with your friend. How how are you? How do these ideas of bringing God and and his his truth into a conversation? Yeah, work well. Well, let me first say, um, I I never think that this is easy, mm. and and it and it never seems to me to be as smooth and as natural as I would like it to be. Um, 
I'm hoping you're, you and your listeners know of um, Christianity Explored and Rico Tice. Rico Tice has written that book, Honest Evangelism. And, yeah. and, and part of what he says in there is that when, when, we, when we evangelize, we have to cross the pain line. That's what he said. We cross the pain line. And, and it's, it's painful. And, and, and for me, it's like, oh, okay, we were talking about the weather. That was fun. We are talking about sports. That was exciting. There's a, there's a uh, topic I, question, isn't it, that, that just digs to the next level? It does. It, it, yes, it's the most important topic you could possibly discuss. But so you're transitioning from anything else that's less important. It is less important, except that it can be a transition. So, I, I mean, I, I, I've even mentioned sometimes with uh, non-Christians that I'm eating with or having a coffee of, isn't this food delicious? Is it, is it, isn't food unnecessarily pleasurable? <laughs> you know, why is it that? Um, uh, if we're talking about um, physical beauty that we see, um, why is it that we're drawn to physical beauty, either in nature or art or music? Um, I, I was a music major and I just love music and I want to develop more and more friendships with people who love music who may not necessarily be Christian. And I, I want to say, isn't there something about music that makes us think that, that there's more to life than just physical matter? Um, and, and very often, I mean, part of my story, my testimony is that for a long time, uh, I believe I, I worshiped music and I wanted it to be the ultimate fulfilling thing in my life. And it was always disappointing. So this is the C.S. Lewis argument from disappointment that it was such a powerful part of my own testimony that I have to kind of weave it in there. So I, I, I say that, you know, music, it's this wonderful gift, but it's a lousy God. And, and I've said that to, to non-believers. I say, I mean, music makes us think there's something more to life than just mere existence. Mm. And yet, if we, if we attach all of our affections to music, it's, it's tremendously disappointing. I mean, sooner or later, the piece of music comes to an end. And, you know, there it is. Now it's over. And, you know, I can't, uh, I can't go back to that great moment in the... the crescendo at the third movement of the symphony and say, why can't I get back to that? I can't, it, it evaporates, it dissipates. So, so those are some kinds of things. Um, there's other, t so in other words, we're, we want to talk deeply and meaningfully about topics so that we're engaging with people on a deep level. And then we want to try to shine um, an aspect about faith or the gospel on it. So again, um, I have some friends that, um, well, um, I've taken up the hobby of photography and I'm going on some different photography workshops and stuff and we take classes. And so I want to talk about photography and I want to talk about beauty and nature and, you know, but, but then I want to say, you know, why, why are we drawn to this stuff? Why do we, why do we stare at sunsets? And, uh, and why, do want to, why do you want to capture it? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Why do why why don't I just look at it and go, oh, that's nice, it's yeah. great. No, 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 wait, 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 like I want it. And if I do capture, it's like, oh, look at this, you know. And um, 
I remember um, on vacation once we were, we were, my wife and I were uh, uh, at the beach and uh, it was a place that was just, you know, so beautiful for sunsets that large crowds would gather at the shore at sunset. They bring their chairs and their drinks and they sat and, and, and everybody got very quiet as the sun started going below. And when it was just finally completely below the surface and there's nothing else left of, of the sun that you could see, people applauded. That was great. They did. Like yay! Was like you know, like yay! Who are you applauding to? Well, exactly, exactly. So I, so I want to, I want to engage in those conversations and say, yeah, it makes us want to applaud, doesn't it? It does. Yes. By the way, there's there's a whole lot of evangelism that starts with a very negative tone. Um, you're a rotten sinner. The world is horrible. It's going to hell. Here's what's wrong with the world. And here's what you need to do to repent of it. Well, that's very crucial part of our message. Um, I just think that there's a whole lot of people in our world today that either they've already heard that message or that part of the message and they don't want to hear any more of it, or it just doesn't engage them in a way that draws them in. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, could you go away, please? Um, and what I, what I want is more of, isn't this wonderful? Is it, isn't, aren't there so many things about life that are just inexplicably great? Um, what does that tell us about God? Um, you know, um, so uh, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on prayer, um, um, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. I mean, it was written for Christians, although he said that all of his books were evangelistic. So I guess I'm going <laughs> to, I'll go along with him on that. But there's this one place where he talks about the difference between um, um, adoration and thanksgiving. Right. And uh, thanksgiving is uh, how kind of God to do this for me. Mm-hmm. But but he says adoration is what kind of a God is it Mm. who creates a world with these kinds of wonderful displays? He uses this word coruscations, which is something that only an Oxford Don would use. Uh, That's a word, you know, but it it means a flash of light. And then he attaches this little sort of punchline. He says, one's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Oh, that's nice. And I love that picture. And that's what I want to do. I, I, I want to try to have people look at a beautiful sunset or listen to Mozart or think about how much fun it is to get together with friends and laugh together or, um, you know, get together with family and share memories. And um, isn't it possible that these things can point us to the God who placed us in families, who placed us in a world where music sounds so beautiful in a world with a sunset every day that we can applaud every day. It, co- yeah. it happens every it's day. Coming. And if you turn around in about 12 hours, it comes back the other way. That's right. It's a sunrise. <laughs> yes, people gather for those things too. Isn't that great? Um, and, and so what you're touching on is, is C.S. Lewis's sort of joy a, a, approach. But he also, and you, you mentioned it a little bit, he also pointed out the, the fact that uh, everything is also slightly disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the, there's, there's two aspects about that. Uh, first of all, 
I, I thought where you're going to go with this, I mean, Lewis did not shy away from talking about pain mm. and suffering and evil in the world. So it's not, it's not all happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. It's okay. Let's look at pain. What, why does it bother us so much? Why is death so, so disturbing? Um, and, and he saw a lot of it. I mean, again, his mother died when he was only 10. He was in world war one and saw some really horrible mm. stuff. Um, at the, at the time that he was broadcasting, um, those messages that became mere Christianity it's during world war two, bombs were exploding, you know, outside the studios uh, almost. So, so he didn't shy away from that. Um, but it, so he asked those questions too. And I'm really sorry. I feel like I lost your question in the midst of this because I went a different direction. No, we're, that's we're, good. Keep keep going. Yes. So he he engaged with the disappointments of life and. and mm, oh right. Yes. Well. Oh, so I, again, I I again, this was perhaps the most powerful argument for me in my own coming to faith. But but he talks about we all have disappointments in life, mm. and he went out of his way to say I'm not talking about the bad things. I'm talking about the good things. Yes, so yes. Um, we went on a great vacation or we have a good job or we married our, 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 our sweetheart. And, and yet, and even the very best of them, it was a great vacation. It's a chemistry is a wonderful job and she's a delightful wife, but every single one of those things has some moments of disappointment. And he says, well, either that, that leaves us with three choices, either, well, then we have to keep chasing after other things to try to find the one that won't disappoint, which is the route of the hedonist and it's it's um, it's even more disappointing as you keep pressing on and pressing on. the The other one is to become a cynic. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, you know, why in the world are you even bothered? You know, I used to go barking after the moon to just you know. But then he says, but then there's another way, a third way. He calls it the Christian way, and that is that if if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world satisfies, the most probable explanation is I was meant for another world. And that has to be one of the most powerful insights. I and it. I love the way he said it, the most probable explanation. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's the most probable one, but it's, I'm not even sure I would have come up with it if I thought about it for uh, thousands of hours. But once you hear that idea, it's like, oh, yeah. well, no wonder it's disappointing. But, you know, it, um, it takes the sting out of the disappointment, I think. Yeah. It's... Oh yeah. Uh, at the end of the symphony, it's over. It's disappointing. That's okay. I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to be saved through that symphony. Mm. That symphony was a pointer to the one who can save and the one who does save. Yeah. And, and a pointer to the one who is beautiful eternally and infinitely. And so the beauty that you're appreciating in the music uh, is, is drawing you to someone who you could gaze at forever and yes, never run out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then, so then the disappointments are really quite beautiful in their own unique way because yeah. yeah. they're reminders that it's not supposed to be here and it's, it's, Oh, um, so um, one of my earliest experiences with classical music and, and it was, it really was this thing of I'm, I'm trying to find, the piece of music that will satisfy. And the first one that I thought was going to do it was uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Okay. And yet, and like the first time I heard this piece, like, okay, this is it. This is the one. And then, 
even before the end of the piece of music, it's a suite of dances. Before it was over, it was like, wait a minute, it, it was gone, it disappeared, what happened? Yeah, moment. And um, years later, I mean, now I've been a Christian for quite a while, my wife and I were going to a, a concert of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and they were playing the, the, the Swan Lake Suite by Tchaikovsky. And I said to my wife on the, on the way there, I said, this was one of the pieces of music that was like this really big disappointment to me. I'm really looking forward to being disappointed again. <laughs> <laughs> and she just looked at me with this odd look that had its own kind of disappointment. For her. <laughs> so, but, but I really meant it. It's like, Oh, that's right. Because, because I wasn't looking to Tchaikovsky to be yeah. my Lord and savior, yeah. Lord help us if that's the case. Um, uh, so it was like, Oh yes, it's this pointer. And then, then I can enjoy it for what it is yeah. Yeah. and, and not demand it to be something yeah. it cannot possibly be. Yeah. And you know, this, this expands, I think I've, I've talked to a few people about this before you've crystallized the thought for me. Um, you know, we have an ideal uh, father that we wish we had. We have an ideal mm -hmm. mother. Mm -hmm. We have an ideal spouse. We have an ideal friend. And those relationships are always disappointing. Yes. Um, and that's something that comes up a lot in conversation. You know, oh, my yes. mum did this or, or you know, mm -hmm. my, my, my sister's gone and betrayed me in this way or something. And that just the fact that we know that they should be better, that there should be some, there's some ideal that's that's significantly better than what we're experiencing, does exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. And, and I've, I've so. said to people, well, that shows you two things. It shows you what God is like, because he's he's that ideal in all in in different ways in all those different relationships, and he's showing you that your mum or your dad or your brother or your friend is not the ideal. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And in an, in an odd way, uh, that enables us to appreciate and to love those people yeah. better and more because I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting them to be God. That's it. That's so, exactly right. so my father, he, 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 he did a bunch of things that were, that were not godly. Um, but he also did some very, very good things about loving his sons. And uh, he's gone now. But uh, I, I can grow in my appreciation for him. Mm. Um, and, and when I remember the things that he didn't do well or, or good, like, well, okay, um, how, how wonderful it is that my dad late in life came to know the Savior. Mm. And, and so he's... He's redeemed. He's forgiven, and now he is uh, recreated. Um, so, but 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 it, but when I take away that demand for the person to be perfect, and and the the ultimate, well, then I then I can appreciate and and love them, and and enjoy them even. Um, exactly I don't know if I'm expressing this no, as you, well. No, that's that's exactly <laughs> my thought. Yep, that you can enjoy those aspects of them that are reaching towards that ideal yes without, without expecting right. them to be that ideal there we go well said there we go and on we that, should do uh, uh, podcasts and stuff <laughs> that was really well done that's good <laughs> well that is actually all we have time for unfortunately randy there were a, a number of other um wonderful insights that i found in your book that i would have loved to talk to you about 
Um, well, maybe another time. Maybe another time, but uh, all our listeners can find those in your book and they can go mm-hmm. and read it. Um, Mere Evangelism, 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to help you share your faith. Uh, so thank you for your time, Randy. Uh, you're very welcome. My, I, I enjoyed this a great deal. Excellent. And you've been uh, listening to the Reformers Bookcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your bookcasts or podcasts, as the case may be. And we will see you next time.